united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. The workers united will never be defeated. Earlier this month, hundreds of workers marched in the streets of St. John's and rallied at Harborside Park. May Day hasn't been a huge deal here in Newfoundland and Labrador, or even in Canada. After all, we have Labor Day in September. But the growing number of workers and allies joining the annual May 1st event in St. John's tells us something important about this province's labor movement. Important enough that independent contributor Rhea Rollman wrote a feature-length article about it, accompanied by a lively photo essay by local photographer Tanya Heath. We also decided to have a closer look for Berry Grounds. I decided to speak with Rollman about the event and her story. She has a background in labor organizing and queer and trans activism and is program director at CHMR-FM, a community radio station in St. John's. She's also author of the forthcoming book, A Queer History of Newfoundland. Here's our conversation. It's so great to have you here and to be working with you again. I'm really excited about that. And, uh, you know, one of our first sort of editorial discussions that we had was you mentioned to me you were going to the May Day rally and that your friend Tanya Heath would be taking photos. So you proposed a photo essay with some accompanying text, but you you wound up writing an in-depth account of the event with the headline, May Day Rally Shows New Face of Today's Labor Movement. Why did you decide to write the article and what happened that day that leads you to believe there's an important shift happening in Newfoundland and Labrador's labor movement? Well, I think, you know, over the the years, I've done a fair bit of labor coverage, uh, covering labor issues here in the province. And I was excited with a lot of the hype I was hearing about the May Day rally that was coming up on May 1st. There have been May Day rallies in St. John's for the last few years, but they've been growing in size, which is one of the interesting things. And this one promised to really be the largest ever. It came in the context of an ongoing PSAC strike. So uh, the PSAC had indicated they were going to be sending you know, their, their strikers, their members to the May Day rally. There was a CUPE provincial convention going on in town at the same time. So CUPE was also kind of lending its support to the event. The May Day rally is organized by a coalition of local organizations, not just labor unions, but other groups like the Workers Action Network, which represents non-unionized workers. There are groups like the, the NDP and the Communist Party were both, I believe, involved and labor unions as well. But the last couple of years, the Newfoundland-Labrador Federation of Labor have really been throwing their energy behind the May Day rally, too. And of course, we have, you know, Labor Day, which is a statutory holiday that takes place in September. But as I explained in the article, May Day is a much earlier day that's been used to honor and celebrate and and organize worker action. It's called International Workers Day. And uh, it's been recognized since the 19th century in different parts of the world. It never really caught on here in Canada in the same way it has in other jurisdictions. But uh, the May Day Organizing Coalition, the the local labor movement, have really been putting kind of a focus on trying to not dissociate from the September Labor Day, but also to honor a May Day as a day of more kind of hearkening to a more revolutionary, more worker militancy oriented Workers Day. 
And that kind of feeds into, I think, the title that we chose for the piece, which was really highlighting the changing face of the province's labor movement. And that title really came up after going to the rally, because one of the things that struck me was the variety of organizations and community groups that were involved. So oftentimes during the statutory holiday in September, you'll see the Federation of Labor, you'll see labor unions having picnics and parades. But at the May Day rally, there was a lot of community organizations there that didn't necessarily represent unionized workers. So you had the Migrant Action Center representing a variety of you know, temporary workers and, and migrant workers who were not necessarily unionized. You had the Workers Action Network, which again represents non-unionized workers in the province. SHOP, the Safe Harbor Outreach Project, which is a sex worker advocacy center run through the St. John's Dennis Women's Center. So you had all of these community groups that were very active, very present, very loud and boisterous and part of the event. And that, to my mind, really signaled not so much a shift, maybe, but perhaps a hearkening back to the the original uh, social movement roots of unionism. And that was reflected in a lot of the comments that were coming from speakers, both from unions and non-unions alike. Well, let's hear some sounds from the May Day March. It began at St. John's City Hall and moved down Water Street to Harborside Park. All right, make some noise, everyone. Happy May Day, sisters, brothers, comrades. Make some noise. You did us proud today. The event was put together by an organizing committee, as you mentioned, with representatives from various unions and community groups. Here's committee chair Kai Reese greeting the crowd at Harborside Park. May 1st is International Workers' Day, a day where the entire working class across the globe stands united in solidarity as one family. Whether in Canada, Europe, Asia, we share the similar struggle against capitalism, against the rich and their exploitation. It is our labor that unites us. We all work for a living and we all, our labor produces all the wealth of this world. Not the bosses, not the shareholders, not the politicians, not the Westons, not the Irvings. It is the workers that make this world turn. And then Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor President Jessica McCormick addressed the crowd. Here's what she said. The history of International Workers' Day dates back to the late 1800s when workers held general strikes and won an eight-hour workday. More than 150 years later, workers are still on the picket lines fighting for dignity and respect. While the nature of work has changed a bit since the late 1800s, and thank God for that, uh, workers standing up against a system that seeks to undermine our rights is the same fight today as it was back then. As long as workers continue to struggle against exploitation and oppression under capitalism, as long as our demands for a more fair and just society aren't met, then we must continue to mark May Day and organize together in solidarity for a better world. Kai Reese and Jessica McCormick didn't immediately focus on any particular type or sector of workers. The first thing they did was name the greater struggle of living and working under capitalism. That's a message that I think often gets lost in union organizing and in today's labor movement more generally. Rhea, how important is it to name capitalism and understand how it works and to know that it's more than just an economic system? I think it's very important. I, I think it's especially important to some of the organizers who we heard from at the rally and who are involved in the labor movement these days. 
I interviewed Jessica after the rally, and she mentioned how her hope is to see the labor movement in Newfoundland, Labrador, and elsewhere, I guess, move more toward its social movement roots. You know, she talks about the service model of unionism. There's different types of organizing models that unions have explored over time. Before unions had any recognition in law, before we had labor relations legislation, unions were basically social movements. And the only way that they could bring about change was through direct action. It was through mass mobilization. It was through getting members to, you know, occupy factories, to confront employers, confront security teams that were hired, you know, private militias that employers would hire, confront the state if the state took the side of the employers. This is where unions came from, you know, this kind of mass organizing. And in the mid 20th century, governments started bringing in a variety of laws, labor relations legislation, you know, laws that were a bit of a mixed blessing, really, for unions. On the one hand, governments began recognizing unions. They began standardizing the process of how you legally form a union, that whole process of getting cards signed, having a workplace vote. And the benefit of that whole process was that employers would be forced to engage with unions in the workplace. They couldn't just ignore unions. They had to sit down and negotiate with unions who represented all the workers. Collective agreements would be negotiated that had the force of law. So unions could enforce collective agreements and could take employers to court or arbitration if they violated the collective agreements. So you saw unions shift toward a very legalistic, bureaucratic model of how they tried to achieve justice in the workplace. That certainly, I think, helped workers in some ways. But there's also been a critique that that kind of drew labor unions away from their social movement roots and that they started getting embroiled in this very bureaucratic legal process and lost sight of the bigger picture of what the struggle was about, which was achieving more just communities, greater equity and justice in the broader community and confronting these bigger systems like racism, like capitalism, you know, these larger systems that were oppressing not just workers in the workplace, but entire communities, you know. So that's the critique that is sometimes leveled against that more bureaucratic service oriented model of unionism. And I think what we're seeing in a lot of jurisdictions these days, especially as governments increasingly side with employers, as employers become larger, more multinational, more powerful, in terms of the resources they bring to bear against workers, we are seeing unions kind of realize that they cannot just rely on teams of lawyers and bureaucratic legalistic language, they have to turn back to their roots. And they have to remember they're part of communities. And they have to form alliances with, you know, non unions, groups like migrant action workers, uh, coalitions, non unionized workers movements, anti racist movements, you know, queer and trans movements, they have to form coalitions in their communities to confront these larger systems, which is why I think we're seeing some of the larger scale labor actions that are happening in parts of the world now. So I think that's partly what Jessica was alluding to. I think it's what Kai was also alluding to, this shift toward hearkening back toward the social movement roots of unions and toward a greater degree of worker militancy in response to some of what we've seen in terms of neoliberal governments siding with employers 
and multinational corporations at the expense of workers. I interviewed someone recently about the early feminist movement, and she talked about this, the debate between those who wanted to overthrow the hierarchies of power, you know, and patriarchy versus those who just wanted a piece of the power and the hierarchy. And I think that's a fundamental uh, question any social movement faces, you know, are you there to get your share of the hierarchy, the power, whatever it is, or are you there to bring about a broader, more just transformation in the system that you're working in? That's a question I think a lot of unions and workers have grappled with. We see it, I think, in questions around climate change and the environment. And that's something I think in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly workers have to struggle with. These large developments around energy or, or mining or oil, you know, they bring jobs, they help increase the wealth of workers, but at what expense? And what is the role of unions in that process? Is it to create jobs for workers? Is it to create wealth for workers? Or is it to create a more just world for everyone, which would probably include not expanding the oil industry, not creating that new energy mega project? And these are very difficult questions that unions have grappled with. I think it's, an, it's a work in progress. The Workers' Action Network has been a very outspoken critic of the way capitalism operates and the way the existing power structures operate. And I think the fact that, you know, workers' movements that don't have access to labor relations legislation, that don't have those kinds of bureaucratic legalistic mechanisms at their disposal, I think those types of movements are more prone to realize that oh, you can't rely on the structures that exist. You need to sometimes create or transform those structures at a broader level, which is why I think we see those groups like Migrant Action United and the Workers' Action Network, we see those groups making a deeper critique of capitalism and the way it operates. But what's exciting is seeing the labor movement come on board with that. The Workers' Action Network, here's what their representative, Sarah Moriarty, said. This might be the first time you're hearing about the Workers' Action Network, so I'll give you a quick backstory. This network launched a little over a year ago by a team of labor activists and community organizers to provide support and representation to tens of thousands of workers who in our province right now are working in low-wage, unstable, and unsafe jobs. These low-wage and unstable sectors of employment are overrepresented by marginalized workers, including migrant workers and refugees without permanent immigration status, Indigenous workers, workers, black workers, other racialized workers, disabled workers, women, and other marginalized genders. Workers in industries like retail, hospitality, food delivery, tech, and early childhood education struggle to stand up for their rights because this province's labor legislation is weak and it must be amended. Rhea, do you know what exactly Sarah was referencing when she talks about the province's labor legislation being weak and how it needs to change? I don't know specifically what she had in mind there, but I do know more broadly some of the critiques that have been made. I think it's important to keep in mind that when people say, you know, go out and form a union if, if you want better working conditions, that is not always possible. And, and it's, it's easier for some people than others. And I think that might in part be what she's alluding to. You know, the Part of this entire system of labor relations means that governments started to define how you can form a union if you want to legally form a union and get all those legal benefits that come with that status. And those rules around how you form a union, they vary from province to province. So they include things like, in order to form a union, first you have to get cards signed indicating there's interest in the workplace. You have to get a certain percentage of workers in the workplace to sign these union cards saying, I would like to form a union in order to trigger a vote in the workplace as to whether there's going to be a union or not. 
both the numbers of cards that are signed, as well as the numbers of people who turn out to vote and the numbers of people who vote yes, all of those kind of percentages and levels are set by government. And the threshold for forming unions is quite high in Newfoundland. I can't off the top of my head remember what they are, but the percentage of workers you need to sign cards and then to get a positive vote in the workplace, the voter turnout, all those thresholds are quite high. In some jurisdictions like Quebec, I'm not sure the uh, the current laws, but I know until recently in Quebec, if you got enough workers to sign a card saying they wanted to form a union, you had what's called automatic recognition, meaning you didn't even need a vote. And the thresholds, the voting thresholds were much lower. So governments tweak these things to make it easier or more difficult for workers to form unions. And the thresholds to forming unions in Newfoundland and Labrador are quite high. So you're already running up against pressure. Additionally, you need protections for workers. There's always the risk of workers being laid off or being fired, really, for forming a union. And in precarious workplaces, that's even more risky because it's harder to prove that an employer is persecuting you when you're already precariously employed on short-term contracts and, you know, you don't have that stability. Power relations in the workplace as well. Labor standards legislation set the floor for what's allowed in the workplace and what isn't because the labor standards are so low in this province. Um, That means workers don't have a lot of protection. And if they can be fired easily, if they can be uh, disciplined easily, then it can be very precarious for workers to form unions. That is even more the case with marginalized groups of workers. If you're in this province or this country on a temporary work permit, there are additional levels of precarity that migrant workers experience. So there are a lot of things that can, a lot of barriers that can get in the way of forming unions. It's wonderful for workers who are able to form unions in the workplace, but it requires a lot of, I don't know if privilege would be the right word, but in some senses privilege, you know, it requires having access to resources, protections, knowledge, and security in order to form a union. Unions provide a lot of stability in the workplace. They provide a lot of benefits for workers. They create workplaces people want to work at. And we know in Newfoundland and Labrador, like elsewhere, there's a labor market crisis. Employers aren't able to hire workers. Having good unions in a workplace are one of the ways employers can make their workplaces, you know, a more positive place. So there's a lot of benefits behind the idea of making it easier for workers to form unions. That's one of the things the Workers Action Network has lobbied for. So they've been lobbying for improvements to make it easier for workers to form unions. But of course, they're also lobbying for changes to labor standards to bring in greater workplace protections for workers who are not unionized and to improve the situation for workers who are not unionized. In your story, you devote a section to Newfoundland and Labrador's rich history of labor activism and organizing. But a lot has changed since, say, the sealers strike of 1832, the railway strike of 48, the loggers strike that began in the late 50s. And even the 1985 beer strike. What's different about today's labor force and today's working conditions? And how have these changes presented new challenges to the labor movement? I think one of the big challenges the labor movement faces today is the role of large multinational corporations. You know, we see corporations amalgamating, we see local corporations being bought up by larger national or international corporations. And that poses real problems. The entire idea of labor relations structure, it's all geared around trying to render more equal the relations between employer and employees. 
when you have these massive employers that are large multinational corporations that can throw so much money into these struggles, it unbalances that relationship. And it's very hard for a small local union to hold its own against these large multinational corporations. You know, there are large multinational corporations that are willing to simply shut down all their operations in a particular country if they don't get what they want. You know, having that kind of economic power, the labor relations system was never built to accommodate that. And we saw that particularly, when was it, 10 years ago or so, there, there were some labor actions with uh, Valet, uh, Inco, and Labrador, um, which really brought that to the fore. And government had to get involved because it was clear that the parent company was simply not interested in playing along equally with the workers and the unions. And government threatened to get involved in order to bring parties to the table. There was the talk at that time of rejigging the labor relations system to try to take into account the role of multinationals and to try to figure out how to make the playing field more equal, so to speak. But nothing ever came of that. And so the problem remains. That is one challenge. There is another challenge that I will say I have noticed in some of the recent labor strife. And that is the role of lawyers in bargaining. (laughs) I think it's something that is really worth exploring. You know, the labor relations system was never designed for lawyers to be part of it. The whole principle behind it was that when you do collective bargaining between unions and employers, it's the employers and the employees sitting down together, collectively negotiating what conditions of work they want in the workplace. Lawyers were never meant to be part of that process. It was supposed to equalize, to a degree, the relationship between employees and employers. In the past several years, we have seen increasingly employers outsourcing or otherwise involving lawyers in the collective bargaining process. So they'll come to the table with teams of lawyers. That has created a profound challenge, I think, to collective bargaining, because lawyers were never meant to be part of that process. The challenge this poses is, I think there's an inherent conflict of interest. First off, the longer, the more protracted and divisive a labor negotiation becomes, the more the lawyer benefits from that. The, the longer it drags on, the more money they make. So there's an inherent conflict of interest there, I think. Also, lawyers tend to, you know, if they're hired by an employer, they have a particular side that they've taken in the struggle. It's not a matter of everyone in the workplace, employer and employee, collectively trying to make the workplace better, trying to make the company better. The lawyers often see their role as trying to get things for the people who've hired them against the other side. So they automatically inject a greater degree of hostility and a more conflictual arrangement. You know, I've seen when lawyers get involved, they will go through the collective agreement, come out with and do up entire list of concessions. They propose to the employer and they say, look, you should try to get the union to give in on all these things. And that creates a kind of a situation of conflict right from the beginning. The other important thing is that lawyers have no vested long-term interest in a workplace. So they come in, they propose a bunch of concessions, and then there's a strike that drags on. At the end of the process, once the strike is over, once the deal is finally signed, the lawyers walk away with all their money, leaving behind these fractured, divided workplaces that then the employer and the employee have to try to fix (laughs) all these relationships that have become very hostile. And I think it's one of the reasons why we see longer, more antagonistic labor disputes breaking out. You know, we've had several strikes in the past couple of years, the city of Mount Pearl last year, the Choices for Youth strike, and a lot of the folks 
uh, I've spoken to who were involved in those disputes say that it was driven largely by lawyers driving those disputes. I think it's also why we see lawyers taking aim at human rights mechanisms and collective agreements. You know, human rights protections and collective agreements don't usually cost the employer anything. They're non-monetary items. So why would an employer want to get rid of human rights protections? A lot of those demands are being driven by the lawyers that are hired uh, because they're seen as a, quote, gain for the employer. So the role of lawyers in collective bargaining is a real growing challenge, I think. Interesting. I hadn't really thought of that. And the presence of lawyers in collective bargaining spaces just seems like something that would be natural today. But that's because I guess I'm, I'm conditioned by you know today's standards. But it, it makes total sense that their presence would undermine the very purpose and nature of what bargaining used to be, to make a, a workplace and a, and a company that is a good, safe, fair space for everyone. That's exactly it. We live in this era of outsourcing and consultants where, you know, politicians who are elected to office or employers who are running workplaces, a lot of them don't actually do the work that they were put there to do. They outsource it to other people. And so we see employers thinking, oh, bargaining is coming up. Better hire a lawyer to do that. But that's not how it's supposed to work. The idea is, again, that employer and employee are supposed to come together, sit down at a table together. They're the ones who are familiar with what the workplace does and what it's there to do. So they're supposed to sit down and collectively decide what's in all of our best interest to keep this company healthy, but also to keep workers happy and thriving. Your report from the Martian rally also touched on another issue that is super important, but highly underreported or underrepresented in media coverage around workers' rights and labor more broadly. You mentioned early that after the rally, you spoke with Federation of Labor President Jessica McCormick, and specifically about an issue that isn't divorced from workers' rights, the rising violence against LGBTQ people in the U.S. and parts of Canada. You reported, McCormick said it's crucial to remember that queer and trans issues are also labor issues. Here's what she said. It's been on my mind, in particular because it's been on the news, but also because I am a queer woman in a leadership role in the labor movement and feel that it's my obligation and duty to talk to my fellow labor activists who are members of the community and who are allies about this stuff. We are not immune, even in our unions, from hateful and bigoted behavior. But I think people feel like distanced from what's happening in the U.S. And it's really important to bring people back to reality because these kinds of things happen in our own backyard and in our workplaces. And we, as trade unionists, have a tremendous amount of leverage and to influence collective agreements, to ensure that they incorporate gender-affirming care into benefits, to advocate for better policies and legislation and provincially and federally. We have huge power and influence in those spaces, and we should be using it to support our queer and trans brothers and sisters and siblings. I, I, I was glad to hear Jessica talk about that because I think this is a, a very timely issue. Uh, I mean, it's always been timely, but especially now. Queer issues, trans issues, LGBTQ issues as labor issues. There are a few areas where labor unions have a role to play here. And Jessica spoke about that. One of the things she alluded to was collective bargaining. So, you know, the importance of labor unions centering queer issues and trans issues in collective bargaining. What does that look like in real life and why is that important? 
I think, first of all, it's important to understand what collective bargaining is. Okay, so we have here in Canada, here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have labor standards legislation. That's laws that apply to all workplaces, whether they're unionized or not unionized. They set the floor. They set the minimum wage. They set the maximum hours of work. You know, they prevent child labor. They set the very base minimum floor. When you form a union and you engage in collective bargaining, what you're always doing is trying to improve the conditions of work to make them better than that minimum floor. And I should emphasize that floor in this province, like elsewhere, is very low. <laughs> uh, so collective bargaining is always about creating better conditions in the workplace. This is particularly important when you're considering areas of society that have not historically been adequately addressed by governments, um, or, you know, areas that are uh, governments are only now starting to take a look at. And I would include in that area, for example, queer and trans rights and supports in society. In Newfoundland and Labrador, it was only in 1997 that human rights protections around sexual orientation were added to the Human Rights Code. That's barely 25 years ago. It was only in 2013 just a decade ago, that protections around gender identity and gender expression for trans people in Newfoundland and Labrador were added to the Human Rights Code. So we're only seeing queer and trans human rights protections brought in very recently in Newfoundland and Labrador. Before that, when there were no protections in law, all you had was what was in your collective agreement. And, and we did see unions taking a role in bringing in those human rights protections in their workplaces before governments brought them in on a larger basis for society as a whole. So for example, at Memorial University, you know, same-sex benefits started to be brought in in the 1980s because unions started pushing for them with their employer here in Newfoundland. It's particularly important these days. One of the big challenges today is providing gender-affirming health care for trans people because our public Medicare system does that very poorly at present. There are enormous wait lists. There are, in Newfoundland and Labrador, there's a terrible system of cost sharing for trans folks who are accessing surgery. There are a lot of problems with how our public Medicare system supports trans people. And so it's very important for unions to take a lead role in adding additional gender-affirming healthcare benefits to their collective agreements to help provide that added support for trans people in the workplace. The other important reason why collective bargaining is an important role in that area is that laws can change. And I think we're seeing that in the US, especially right now, in all of these right-wing Republican states, we're seeing Republican governments rolling back what people considered were untouchable human rights. You know, we're seeing reproductive health care wiped out, we're seeing child labor protections being wiped out in US states, as well as, of course, protections for queer and trans people. And so when governments repeal those laws, all you're left with is what's in your collective agreement. In Ontario, in the early 2000s, the Ontario government delisted gender-affirming health care from public health care in that province. And it took a few years before activists were able to get the Ontario government to bring it back in. So again, during that time, all you're left with is what's in your collective agreement. This is one of the other reasons why worker unions need to be careful when employer lawyers say things at the bargaining table like, oh, you don't need that human rights protection in your collective agreement. That's in law. It's duplication to have it here. No, you know, it's important to have that extra layer of protection because laws can change. So collective bargaining is one really important area. 
The other important areas, of course, are uh, education. Unions do a lot of education work. They do peer education for their own members. They have large education departments, so they can often help provide education materials for employers about things like pronoun use or, you know, how to support workers going through transition. Um, And then the other plank, I guess, of, of unions' responsibilities around Uh, queer and trans rights would be in political advocacy. So, you know, unions have a lot of political uh, sway. And when they meet with governments, they can push not only to make things like minimum wage better for workers, but also to do things like improve public health care for trans people and queer people. So they can add their voices to those broader community struggles that folks are, are facing. So it's really important, and it, it's good to see unions taking a, a big role in, in that area. Last year, QP Newfoundland and Labrador adopted a resolution both to push for gender-affirming care improvements in local healthcare plans. So, for example, Memorial University relies on Blue Cross for its healthcare plan. Blue Cross last year brought in a gender-affirming care component So for all Blue Cross plans around the country, it was this whole package of great benefits for trans employees. But not every workplace Blue Cross plan added that component. And Memorial University did not add that component. Memorial University's healthcare plan is governed by a committee that includes administration. It also includes reps from the unions. So armed with that resolution from QP Newfoundland Labrador, QP's union reps on the MUN Healthcare Committee were able to go in and start pushing for Memorial University to add that Blue Cross gender-affirming care component to the local healthcare plan. So those are the kinds of tangible changes. I hope you don't mind me asking, because I don't know to what extent you've talked about this publicly, but I do happen to know that you've been working on a big project on a new book. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share with our listeners sort of what that project is, what your book is about, and um, just if you could give us a little glimpse of uh, what you're working on. I would love to. Uh, I, it's taken over my life for the past several years. So the book is called A Queer History of Newfoundland, and it basically looks at queer activism and community building, queer presence in Newfoundland in the 20th century. It's, I think, both a a project of love, but also a pandemic project. I really dove into it when the pandemic shut down everything. And, um, you know, there hasn't been a lot written about this province's queer history. And there are a lot of uh, myths and misunderstandings around just how rich and vibrant, you know, this, this province has an amazing queer history and an amazing history of activism around queer and trans issues. So I really wanted to pull together that information and put it all together, you know, in a coherent narrative for, for people to be able to access. I, I initially thought this would be more of an archival uh, project. You know, I initially started by scouring the archives to try to put together what the chronology of activist groups and projects was. But I quickly realized that the archives didn't make a whole lot of sense without the people who did the activism. And so I started reaching out to the activists that I saw named there. I started doing interviews. I've done over 120 interviews now with kind of queer elders, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And talking about, you know, both the activism they did, but also just what life was like for queer folks growing up in Newfoundland and Labrador in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. It's been so eye-opening seeing, you know, what their life experiences were, how varied they were, what barriers and persecution people faced, but also how they built community and how 
they resisted a lot of the repressions that existed in those areas and still exist in Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's been a really moving project. You know, I encountered you know, trans activists from from the 80s and 90s, I never knew about growing up, you know, and reading about their struggles, trans activists from the 70s, even, you know, reading about their struggles and their lives has just been so fulfilling. So I'm excited to get the book done and to get all that information out for, for others to be able to share. And so do you have a publisher and most importantly, a release date? Uh, yeah, the publisher is Engine Books, a local publisher. They've been wonderful, uh, very supportive, and you know they they helped me get grants from Canada Council and and you know Arts and L, City of St. John. So that really helped. We're hoping to get the book out this year before the end of the year is what we're aiming at. And I want to emphasize, I struggled with the title for so long because I felt this pressure. Initially, our working title was the Queer History of Newfoundland, and you know I felt a real pressure, you know that the idea that this had to be the queer history, all the queer history of Newfoundland, I realized as I was going that, you know, no, this is a queer history. There are so many queer histories to be told in and of this place. This is maybe the first. I hope there will be others. You know, I hope other people will come forward when they read this book, then share their stories, because so many people have contributed to, you know, the queer history of Newfoundland. So I, I hope we'll hear even more of those stories as the book comes out and as, you know, as, as people talk about this. Well, it's hard to believe that we're already almost halfway through the year. So if your goal is to get it out by the end of 2023, we really don't have that long to wait. And I'm really excited. Um, before we go, Rhea, I want to invite you to put something into our virtual time capsule. And eventually we're going to start pulling all these things out. On the issue of, um, of workers' rights, the labor movement, que uh, queer and trans rights within the labor movement, any aspect of what we've discussed today and what you covered in your May Day piece, what are you most going to be looking for in the coming weeks and months with respect to any of these issues? I think the labor movement's commitment to queer and trans rights is something that will become increasingly important, especially in the short term future. You know, we see a lot of uh, growth and hate mongering going on from spilling over from what's going on in the US and the UK. I think we're seeing increasingly that here in Canada as well. So I think seeing the labor movement's commitment to fighting those fights and seeing how that goes, I think that'll be something really important to see how strong that commitment is and how strong it remains. As well, uh, I think, as the labor movement's broader commitment to social unionism and to incorporating the struggles of non-unionized workers and, and non-workers, you know. In the 1970s, there was a vibrant unemployed workers movement in this province, representing people who didn't have jobs and fighting for full employment. A lot of us don't realize that, you know, how strong those movements were back then. So I think seeing how committed in a long-term way the labor movement is to this idea of, of the movement as a social community movement, I think that's something we will need to look back on and, and see what comes of it. That's it for episode eight of Berry Grounds. The show is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Justin Brake. If you like it, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review to help us reach more people. Berry Grounds is only possible because of listeners like you. You can help secure the show's future by making a small monthly donation at theindependent.ca. We'll soon be announcing some Berry Grounds-related bonus perks for those who support The Independent or this show, so sign up for the Indies Weekly Newsletter to be the first to find out. You can also do that by visiting our website, theindependent.ca. 
I'm Justin Brake. Thanks for listening. <laughs>